when I was considering what to preach, it dawned on me that I had never actually preached from this book before. And initially, I thought, well, it's kind of a negative book. <clears throat> when I was considering... This message was actually initiated uh, during a conversation that Pastor Daniel and I were having several weeks ago. And we had both mentioned that we had never actually preached from this book before. And I went home and I thought about it and I said, you know, it's, it's kind of a negative book. And, I was, and then the Lord started speaking to me from it, speaking to me about it and speaking some different truths that we're going to bring out here this morning. And you can title the message, The God of Compassion. And we're going to use the book of Jonah this morning to illustrate how the compassion of God and the lengths that he will go to to express and demonstrate his compassion for others. Now, because it involves the story of a, of a man being swallowed by a fish, many people dismiss Jonah as being fiction. Some even teach it as being allegorical rather than factual. <coughs> but Jonah was a real person. He's referenced in 2 Kings during the reign of King Jeroboam II, 2 Kings 14.25. He's mentioned as a living prophet. Jesus also refers to him as a historical person in Matthew chapter 12, verses 39 through 40. This book is, however, very still, still this book is quite unique in that it deals more with the life of the prophet himself rather than the message of that he was, rather than the message that he was sent to preach. God sent Jonah to Nineveh, as we've all heard a million times. But Jonah rebelled. He did not want to go to Nineveh. And God utilized his sovereignty, utilized the elements, the different situations in, in the earth to put Jonah back to the path where he belongs, where he belonged to share the message that God had instructed him to share. <clears throat> The theme of this book, from my perspective, is compassion. God is a God of boundless compassion, not just for us, as Jonah would think that himself were the Israelites, but also for them, the Gentiles, the pagans. And we're going to see here in this book that the pagans are actually more responsive to the Lord than Jonah is. And this is clear from the flow of how this story was put together. Jonah is the object of God's compassion throughout the book. And the pagan sailors, pagan Ninevites, are those who are the benefactors of that compassion. And it ends with God asking Jonah, should I not pity in Nineveh? Should I not pity Nineveh? We, in, in, in addition to a, the, a theological... <clears throat> In addition to a theological study that you might do in a Bible school, I'd like to look at it more from the human perspective, our perspective, 
do how do we relate to this? Do we look at other people through God's eyes or through eyes like Jonah? Jonah was more concerned with that plant perishing at the end than he had for the Ninevites or even for the pagans on that boat for that matter. Conversely, the pagans were very concerned with human life. They were very concerned with casting Jonah overboard and being accountable for innocent blood. And the king of Nineveh showed concern for his entire city and mandated that all should repent. So we see this contrast throughout. So we should think, insert ourselves into the story. How do we react? Reflect upon God's compassion for us and also reflect upon how we show God's compassion to others. So I've divided the book into four parts because there's four chapters. The first one is, I won't go. The second one is, I will go. The third one is, I'm here. And the fourth one is, I shouldn't have come. And we're going to follow that kind of division as we go through the the remainder of this message. First, I won't go. Jonah's commissioning and flight. Jonah 1, verses 1 through 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose and flow. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. First, we have this word, disaster, evil, if you will. Their evil has come up before me, God says in verse 2. That word is a recurring word throughout Jonah. It's used nine different times, and it's translated multiple different ways, three different ways at least. Evil, disaster, discomfort. And God uses it to confront Nineveh with their evil. He tells them that if they don't turn from their evil, that evil will come upon him. them. The same word is used twice. The sailors in verse 7 decide to cast lots to find out the source of evil. Same word. The sailors in verse 8, when they find out it was Jonah, ask him why they brought this evil upon them. Same word. The Ninevite king in chapter 3 calls for the inhabitants to turn away from evil. Same word. God sees the city turn from evil and relents from the disaster he was going to send. Same word, evil and disaster. And the Lord appoints a plant to save Jonah from his discomfort. Same word. We'll see that throughout. If you do not turn from your evil, then evil will come upon you. Now, God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh, and he says, I won't go. In fact, he says, I'm going to Tarshish, which is in the exact opposite direction of where God wanted to go. We'll put a little map up. It says, Nineveh was up to the north and the east of Israel, and Tarshish was to the west, as far away as you could be. And he uses that three times in the the verse, uh, 
to say, he rose to flee to Tarshish. He went down and found a ship to go to Tarshish. And he hired them that he could go with them to Tarshish. Very clearly, very distinctly, I'm not going to Nineveh. And it says he's fleeing from the presence of the Lord. And look at this, <clears throat> look at this word choice here. Fleeing from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa. Later on, we're going to see he went down to the bottom of the ship. Then he went down to the mouth of the belly of the whale. Then he went down further again into the depths of the sea. So fleeing from the Lord, adding to that point and that concept of going down. So from the presence of the Lord is repeated over and over again because that's what Jonah was doing. He was trying to run from the presence of the Lord, but then he went down which is also usually a euphemism for death. It actually, in his prayer in chapter 2, he says, From Sheol I am crying out. So the this, this suggestion here, the implication, if you will, is that stepping away from the presence of the Lord leads us down, doesn't it? The further away we go, the further down we go. So points to ponder here. What do we think is going to happen to Jonah? Can we really ever run from God. No, <laughs> we can never run from God because he's everywhere, right? Second point, do we have a Nineveh in our own life? Second point to ponder, do we have a Nineveh in our own life? <clears throat> do we have a Nineveh in our own life? Now, it may not be a country, although it could be. If the Lord says, go to this country, and you say, Lord, I don't want to go there. There's an old song. I don't even know when it was written. I think his name was Scott Wesley Brown. Please don't send me to Africa. I don't think I've got what it takes. Now, I'm not going to go through the whole thing. It's a satirical song, obviously, tongue-in-cheek, where he's describing the reasons why he doesn't want to go to Africa and, and as a missionary and so forth, and it's meant to be hyperbolic where he's exaggerating how uh, some of the reasons why someone would not want to go to a mission field. Now, that could be it. That could be your Nineveh. For me, it's not Africa, so don't even think that. I've already been there once for about two months, and I'm going back in January, and I'm very excited about it. But it could be anything. Maybe, <clears throat> maybe and more likely, it's an area of our heart where God says, let's deal with this. And we say, no, Lord, let's deal with this instead. Or let's deal with this other thing, but leave this small little thing alone. David, when he was writing, King David, when he lived his life, did not live his life that way. He didn't have a Nineveh, if you will. His prayer was, search me, O God, and know my heart. Psalm 133 Psalm 139, 23 through 24, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. David was willing to have God examine every area of his heart. There was nothing that he hid and kept back from the Lord. And obeyed the Lord in all that he was commanded to do, a man after God's own heart who would fulfill all my will. There was nothing that David held back 
from the Lord. Whereas Jonah said, I don't want to go to Nineveh. So now we come to the famous part of the story where Jonah is on the boat with these men. And God causes a great storm to come upon the sea, a great wind. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea. This is verses 4 through 6. Then the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his God. They hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone down, again, gone down, into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do we mean? What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Jonah wasn't carried. Jonah, Jonah wasn't worried at all with the loss of human life here. He was sleeping. And these pagan sailors were, were very worried that they would perish. If only, if only Jonah knew Psalm 139, 7 through 10. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. There is no place that we can hide from the presence of the Lord. Jonah was running. He jumped on a boat to get as far away as he could, but there was no place that he could flee the presence of the Lord. Even in the sea, he could not. This reminded me of a verse in, a couple of verses in Revelation chapter 6 of those who try to run from the Lord. And they're running during the time of God's judgment. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful, everyone slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne. For the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, who can stand? Jonah's trying to run, these people here are trying to run, but there is no place that we can hide from the presence of the Lord. It's so interesting here. A bit of irony, you'll see some, a lot of ironical uh, thoughts here throughout uh, Jonah. It's ironic that the pagan is the one calling out to Jonah to pray to his God. It's also ironic that these pagans are more concerned with the loss of human life than Jonah is. So what do they do? They, be, they decide they're going to cast lots. We would say draw straws here in the United States to determine who the culprit is. They believed that the divine was influencing the casting of these lots. And of course, where does it land? It lands with Jonah, because he is the reason that all of this is happening. And he confesses to them his story. He says, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceeding afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. And he tells them to throw him into the sea so that everything would calm down. And they refuse. 
They refuse initially, and they row harder and so forth. And again, it's ironic that he confesses to believe in the one who controls the sea, and yet he runs and finds a boat and gets in the middle of the sea trying to run away from God. And as these men row more and more feverishly, the storm gets worse and worse and worse. And finally, in verses 14 through 16, they determine there's nothing else they can do but to throw Jonah overboard. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah, hurled him into the sea, and ceased, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. At the beginning, these pagans are praying to their own gods, and at the end, they're praying to the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, which means Jehovah. They're praying to the true and living God. And they're concerned for innocent blood. They did not want it to be held against them that Jonah, they thought, was going to die. Lord, don't hold this against us. You're doing your will. They pray to the true and living God. These pagans are influenced by what is happening to Jonah. God is using these circumstances to even touch the lives of these pagans here. And... They're turned. They pray to the Lord. They make sacrifices. They make vows to Him. Amazing. They turn. And they confess their faith. So we we look at God's sovereignty here. He's using even Jonah's running from Him to move with compassion on these sailors. Jonah's running from Him, from the Lord, trying to get away, and God is using a storm and, and, and all of these things to get Jonah's attention. And at the same time, he's converting this group of pagan sailors to be true believers. So point to ponder, who fears the Lord more? Jonah or these pagans at this point? Jonah wasn't concerned with the loss of human life while these pagans were even to the point where they did not want to throw him overboard because they did not want to shed innocent blood. So I won't go and look at the effect of running from the presence of the Lord. Look at all of the turmoil that is the result. Finally, the sailors throw him overboard. And what happens? He is swallowed up by a great fish sent from the Lord. And then Jonah prays. Finally, he confesses his sin and vows to do what God originally asked him to do. He thanks God for saving him, but doesn't even mention the pagans at all. So again, he's not concerned with these pagans. Now, so we're not going to read all of it, but his prayer is basically all of chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. He says, Out of my distress, verse 2, I call to you, out of the belly of Sheol, which is usually referred to as hell or death, 
I have cried unto you and you heard my voice. So this is an important point. As I mentioned, he's running away from the Lord and going down. And where does he end up? Here in the belly, in Sheol, in the darkness, crying out to the Lord. I went down to the land, verse 6, whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought me up from the pit. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, verse 7. And then verse 9, with the voice of thanksgiving, will I sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He responds in humility and thanksgiving. This is how he responds when God's grace is shown towards him, when God's compassion is shown towards him. He responds in humility, in thankfulness. But when God shows his compassion to Nineveh, when God shows his grace and mercy to Nineveh, how does he respond? In anger and regret. We'll see that in just a minute. So I will go. Verse, chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Jonah's recommissioning. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. This time he listens. The second time. I love how they throw that into this verse. Showing God's persistence to get the message to Nineveh and his determination to use Jonah to send that message. And Jonah finally listens. He finally heeds the word of the Lord. And the Lord causes him to be expelled from the belly of this great fish. And he heads off to Nineveh. And I've often pondered when reading through this book where Jonah landed, right? Think about that. I often wonder, ponder where God caused the fish to expel Jonah onto the shore. And I, I, I'm quite sure, at least the way that I feel, he put him right back in the spot where he initially started. <clears throat> he put him right back in the spot where he initially determined to not be obedient and go to Tarshish instead. Because that's what happens when we run from the Lord, isn't it? We can go off the path as far as we want, but eventually, if we turn, we have to come all the way back to where we left and then go forward. So I wonder what it was like for Jonah <laughs> to be expelled after three days and nights in the belly of a fish. A disgusting thought. No doubt he was miserable that entire time. To finally be released from that and come to and realize he's right where he left off in the beginning. God is so good to us. He brings us right back so that we can go forward and continue. Part three. I'm here. Now, 
Nineveh was an exceeding great city, three days' journey in breadth. And Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth for the greatest of them to the least of them. Just eight words. Just eight words. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Think about all the other prophecies we have in Scripture. Think about books like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and these long prophecies, many, many words, multiple prophecies. And yet here God uses eight words. And the entire city is turned. I love this. They turn and they repent from the greatest of them to the least of them. Just like those pagans responded, now the Ninevites are responding. And they follow the pattern of what we would call scriptural spirit repentance. They, there's a message of judgment. They are affected. They repent. And then God relents of the judgment he says he's going to do. Look at verse 6, chapter 3. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne as well, covered himself with sackcloth and in ashes. And then verse 7 gives a decree. By decree of the king and his nobles, neither let man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed on drink or water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them come out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows, verse 9? Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And then in verse 10, that's exactly what happened. God saw what they did. They turned from their evil way and God relented of the disaster, same word, disaster, that he said he would do to them and he did not do it. So we have true repentance here, even the animals. So we have true repentance here. Even the animals are subject to the fast. Another interesting thing I wanted to point out is it seems like verse 6 and verse 7 might be out of order because the king gives the decree. and But in verse 6, it says the people responded. And I think that's an important point because we put the people's response first ahead of the proclamation to underscore the immediacy of the people's response to the message. They immediately responded, and then the king made it official after the fact and I think it's important that these two verses are, are in this particular order. Because if the king would have responded and made a decree, it could, would be easy to assume that the people were just doing what the king said. Putting the people's response first shows the impact of God's word, shows the impact of what was happening, the impact in the land, and how they turned. And then the king made it official after the fact. They turned. There was a true turning here. There's a 
human action of repentance and the divine response of relenting from the disaster that was coming. You, re you repent from your evil, the disaster won't come. The same Hebrew word used to utilize two different things. Think about this point to ponder here. Look at the repentance in these Gentiles, in Nineveh and also on the ship, the pagans on the ship. They respond. They turn to the Lord. They're praying to him. They're repenting. They're, they're fasting. And yet what's happening in Israel during the reign of King Jeroboam II and others? They're rejecting the Lord. Israel is rejecting the Lord, rejecting the prophets. It's a very disastrous time. And yet here these pagans, these Gentiles, are responding to the Lord. They repent and they turn with sincerity. And, and the Lord does not bring judgment. Their response, and yet what is the response of Jonah, which we'll see in just a minute. Jonah was, Jonah was of the assumption that these pagans should not be saved. Only he should be saved because he was happy when it happened to him <clears throat> and the Israelites because he prophesied to the Israelites briefly. So the compassion of God is for us, but not for them. And some people can think that way. Jonah certainly did. So I'll go. Lord, you've got my attention. I'll go. And now we come to Jonah's response. I shouldn't have come. I should not have come. Chapter 4. It displeased Jonah exceedingly. Displeased. The same word. Evil. Displeasure. Discomfort. One translation says, It was exceedingly evil to Jonah to see what God did. He was angry. He prayed to the Lord. Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. Therefore, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord says, Do you well to be angry, Jonah? The Lord says, Jonah, why are you so angry? This focuses on Jonah's self-centered response. Compare this to how he prayed in the belly of the fish. When it was his life on the line, he's thankful, he's humble. And now these 120,000 Ninevites, he's angry when God saves them. He's angry and he says, I'd rather die than live through this. Take my life. Jonah prays, take my life. And another use of irony here, now, who's more right with God? Jonah or these pagans in Nineveh? They've repented, they've turned, they're responding to the Lord. They're now in harmony with him. They are now right with God and Jonah's the one who's angry and upset and disobedient, out of line with the Lord. Jonah knew God. He knew his character. 
merciful, slow to anger. This is how God describes himself. Think about Exodus 34, 6 through 7. When the Lord shows himself to Moses, he describes his character. He uses these words. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, the Lord, the Lord, a God of merciful, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and children's children to the third and fourth generation. God's confession of himself, his own character, is that he's compassionate, slow to anger, merciful, steadfast, love and faithfulness. And these are the exact words that God points back to, that Jonah points back to God and says, I knew you were merciful. I knew you were slow to anger. I knew that you were abounding in love. This is why I didn't want to go. Because I knew that they would turn and you would not judge them. It's angry with the Lord. And God says, why are you angry? Do you well to be angry? Which leads to the last part of the story, but he says, just take my life. Now we have this account in the next several verses of Jonah and this plant, this gourd, if you will. Jonah leaves the city and sits down and stares at it. He builds himself a little booth. And in verse six, or verse five, it says, he sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Almost like he wants to see judgment come and he's going to sit there until he sees it. Now the rest of these verses, verses six through seven, God appoints a plant and allows it to rise up and provide shade to Jonah's head. And then the next day he appoints a worm to come and kill that plant and the wind drives it away and it dies. And the sun arises and it beats down on Jonah's head. And again, he says, Lord, it's better for me to die than to live. Just take my life. So God appoints this plant. He also appoints the worm. And Jonah here in the next verse 9 shows compassion for the plant. Interesting. God says to Jonah, verse 9, and this is God's lesson about compassion. The last two verses of this chapter the last three verses of the book itself, demonstrate God's compassion, which is the whole point of this whole study. Do you well to be angry for the plant, Jonah? Jonah replies, yes, I do well be to angry. Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you do not labor, nor did you make it grow which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Jonah finally expresses concern over something that's about to perish, and we find out it's a plant. 
and not this 120,000 people in Nineveh or the cattle and so forth. God was using this to demonstrate his compassion. He says, you're so worried about this plant. Why shouldn't I be worried about 120,000 people and much cattle and so forth? Should not I pity them? Should not I have compassion upon them? God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. And he uses this entire account, this whole thing with Jonah, to demonstrate that. Look at how even when Jonah's running from the Lord, he, God uses it to affect the lives of those sailors on that ship. And when he brings Jonah back, he uses it to affect an entire city, 120,000 people. True repentance. Even the cattle were fasting. God uses it. And yet in contrast, rather than respond in joy, Jonah responds in anger. And that's not how God replies at all. So it's a contrasting of account of God's compassion. And what I want for all of us this morning to do is think, reflect upon the compassion that God has shown us, that he's shown you, that he's shown your family, that he's shown others, Reflect upon that compassion and thankfulness and in humility. God, we're so thankful for how you've met with us. We're so thankful for how you've worked in our lives and shown us your compassion. But also reflect on how we show that compassion to others. We don't want to be like Jonah. Rather than respond in joy, he responded in anger and was repentant. I wish I didn't come. I should not have come. I knew this was going to happen. Yet, we can show the compassion of Christ to others. We can learn a lot from Jonah. So now, it does, you know, a lot of people teach Jonah through the auspices of the reluctant prophet the, and focus a lot on that. And I mean, there's certainly valid reasons to do that, but I look at it as God utilizing even this. Difficult situation to show his compassion on as many as he can. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should have eternal life. And all who would or could repent or will repent, he will give a chance to repent and have compassion upon them. He cares deeply for all people, not just us, but also them. And here in the Old Testament, we have an account of the Gentiles being turned to the Lord and being more right than even they were in Israel. They were rejecting God in Israel at this time. And yet here, this pagan city founded by Nimrod back in Genesis, one of the most wicked men of all, this pagan city turns to the Lord. God cares about all people and is not willing that any should perish. And he will utilize anything he can, any experience he can. He uses his sovereignty, comes through, and will save them all. Save as many as he can, as many as are willing. And that's what the book of Jonah shows me. And I hope it's been a, a valuable study for you as well. God's compassion for all people. Amen? Amen. God bless you.